right. Okay, we are in the broadcast. Sorry, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a returning guest, Ken and me, from TrueFreeThinker.com. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about his book that analyzed all of the themes within the science fiction show Raised by Wolves. So I thought maybe we could cover one of his earlier books, which was published last year, but I had an interest in, in that title of that book that we'll be talking about tonight. And you can see it on the screen here if you're on YouTube. Title is A Worldview Review of the Alien Predator Mythos Franchise. And there's a lot of information in this that I really didn't know about. So I was delighted to read it. And as usual, you know, he goes in very, uh, does a lot of deep kind of research and ties in a lot of themes and things like that. So, Ken, thanks for uh, joining the show tonight. And for people who may not know, can you talk a little bit about your background and then what led you to write this book? My background, well, appar <laughs> apparently from what I'm reading in the chat, I'm just another occult wannabe sellout wolf. Oh, man. Where's um, that? Oh, it's okay, in the YouTube well, chat. So we're off to just, Oh, there it is. Another sellout wolf. So I, mm. I don't know how you became a wolf. That's yeah, a new one. I mean, um, I didn't become a pariah to my family by accepting Jesus as my Lord, God, and Savior to be a wolf. So go figure. Yeah, that's a little um, strange. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, all I can say is uh, please repent because that is an unrighteous judgment. So in terms of background, yeah, I'm uh, Jewish by by genetics and theology and uh, came to recognize Jesus as my Messiah and have been doing whatever little I can to write and speak in my articles and books and lectures in defense of that. And that also includes some kind of um, cultural um, commentary where I weave together um, stuff like this, like in movies. What is the culture telling us? How do I view it theologically? How do they combine or clash? So this is all part of it. Raised by Wolves and now um, the World View Review of the Alien and Predator French, uh, Mythos franchises. Where And this this is a book we're, we're discussing. And I reviewed the entire, both franchises in their totality, including the crossover movies. Which is funny when you talk to fans, you know, they're like, the crossovers aren't canon. It doesn't matter to me. I mean, I'm interested in the worldview philosophy behind it. So just to give you a quick rundown, because I always joke that my research for this book was to watch a dozen movies. Uh, but in reality, it was a lot more because for any given movie, I want to go a little beyond just what I think. So if I can get some useful quotations from, well, who could it be? It could be a director, it could be a screenwriter, it could be an actor, it could be a set designer, it could be any number of people, uh, which means that I maybe have to read six articles just to get one quotation that I can use because mostly these articles are about stuff that doesn't interest me. You know, the cinematography and the funding and the acting and the this and that. I that stuff doesn't interest me so it's a lot of work just to find little bits of useful information so this series um these two series uh are alien aliens predator predator 2 
Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, AVP, Alien versus Predator. I even threw in a, a movie called Seed, which is a, a fan movie, a fan film. And I only included it because it touches upon the the basic plot behind the uh, the movies, the bottom line, the philosophy. So I was interested in that one. Then Aliens versus Predator Requiem, then Predators, then Prometheus, then Alien Covenant, and then The Predator. And I mean, that takes oh, us from 1979 to 2018. Right, that's a long thing, and also super influential. These films are still Absolutely. being watched. Predators still shown all the time. So yeah, in uh, fact, I'll tell you something interesting into which I ran just today, because uh, I'm currently writing a book reviewing movies with alien and UFO themes. And by the way, I can tell you right now, it's going to be at least a two-parter because the more I write. The, the more, more great, great movies I can think of, the more I want to review, the bigger the book gets. So today I was right. I finished writing a review of Life Force from the 1980s. Okay, now the, the screenplay was written by Dan O'Bannon, who also wrote the original screenplay for, or the script for Alien, which Ridley Scott directed. Okay, now... Life Force is loosely based on uh, Colin Wilson's novel, The Space Vampires. Okay, now. Gotcha. Uh, O'Bannon's wife says that O'Bannon wrote a Necronomicon, by the way. And right. that's, and, yeah, and that's, she still has it. So I wrote to her, I contacted her about that, but I mean, I haven't gotten a reply. Um, so now you have um, O'Bannon writing the script based on Colin Wilson's novel. And you'll be interested in this. Colin Wilson also wrote a biography titled Aleister Crowley. The right, I know, I'm familiar. Yeah, yeah, no, I know Colin Wilson. He was kind of an occult writer. He was actually a very prolific uh, British writer, covered yes. a lot of interesting topics. Now, Sorry to interrupt you, Ken, but... We have a very special guest tonight, Johnny from the Iron Show, who is muted right now. I don't know if he wants to stop in and say hi, but he definitely had a couple questions for Ken regarding the last show. So we might do Come on some follow-up questions. So Let Johnny, do you want to unmute? He's there. I don't know if he okay. wants to unmute. So anyway, uh, please continue. This meanwhile. Oh, there yeah, meanwhile, in, um, in his autobiography, Colin Wilson wrote, John Fowles once told me that the film The Magus, made from his highly successful novel, was the worst movie ever made. But after seeing Life Force, I sent him a postcard telling him that I had done him one better. And of course, you know uh, who, who the who the Magus is based on. Probably Crowley, right? Well, yeah. Or yeah, who was the the Magus? Who wrote that? Was that a book or a movie? John Fowles. On Fowles, that's right. F-O-W-L-E-S? Yeah. Yes. No, I know Magus. I didn't know that it was based on Crowley. I got to make a note of that. Well, um, anyhow, I, I thought that was an interesting correlation. So, yeah, O'Bannon um, wrote the script, the original one, for what be became Alien. 
And uh, incidentally, he states that a better title would have been The Haunted Spaceship because this his idea was that it was a supernatural menace. Okay, now that's fascinating to me because you could watch Alien and you you might never even suspect that there's anything supernatural about it, right? It's just a biological life form. Right. Uh, and maybe that the movie does not have a supernatural element. Maybe that was just uh, in the script uh, or, or Bannon's O'Bannon original idea, but maybe they dropped it. But see, what leaves me haunted <laughs> in my thoughts is, well, how do we know? How do we know? Because we have seen aliens um, being made to portray many things, such as uh, one of the movies I was reviewing is They Live by John Carpenter. And to him, the aliens just represented Reaganomics, right? To him, it didn't have to do with actual aliens from another planet. Uh, those aliens were actually just the forces of the market and greed and all that. So. Um, also, in, in early Buck Rogers uh, comic books, you see the aliens look exactly like Japanese people because that was during World War II. And so they were depicting the current menace as aliens when they, they right? So, so maybe there's something to this haunted thing after all, and the alien is actually something supernatural. Now, again, you'd have to kind of figure that out as you go. But as we go along... We find that um, one thing that interested me is that Ridley Scott is an atheist. Okay, so now to an atheist, what could be greater than humanity if we seek for something beyond ourselves? It definitely wouldn't be God. So how about aliens, right? Because we can view them as higher, more evolved, um, highly technological, and for it some explains creation, reason, right? Explains panspermia creation. It explains pans, yes. panspermia creation, things like that. Right. So you have a so, different type of creation myth. That's right. And, and though that's the thing is uh, now for some odd reason, I, I think it's a non sequitur, but I run across it all the time. People think, well, aliens, high tech, ergo aliens, high spirituality. I don't understand how that would work, but hey, uh, seriously, though, I mean, just because they have superior technology, that means they have superior theology, so we should take their advice on theological issues. How That'd be like saying if one of our astronauts landed on another planet and found alien life and started preaching to them uh, about their theology or ours, I mean, what would being a good engineer necessarily correlate to being a good theologian, right? It's right. not necessarily the case. And in fact, I found it fascinating that in uh, the atheist Carl Sagan's novel, Contact, he, he makes a point about this because the woman that was uh, technically, literally technically, technologically most qualified to go and meet the aliens was an atheist. So the preacher is uh, saying, well, but therefore she doesn't represent the majority of humanity, right? There's a disconnect there. So that's really very interesting. And, and so, yes, we could uh, definitely see the aliens uh, portrayed as some kind of gods easily, right? right. right. Yes. And, and 
that has the potential. I'm not predicting anything, but I'm saying that does have the potential of uh, bringing people together because really it, it has the potential and I'm being careful in qualifying my terms. It has the potential of cutting through all the theology because all, all of us theologically minded people would have to do is say, uh, well, yeah, they're, they're all part of it. And now they're revealing to us that our ancient texts were actually talking about them. And then the atheists would be more than happy to go along. In fact, in my book, uh, 50 shades of gray aliens, I have a whole chapter titled Ancient Atheist Aliens, where I'm quoting top atheist after top atheist after top atheist talking about aliens. I mean, they're they're really obsessed with them, and you can see why. To them, that there, there would be nothing higher, really. Especially if, like you said, they have the technology to either through panspermia or directed panspermia to seed life on Earth or, or manipulate it or what have you. So these are... Uh, Ridley Scott has talked about how he's been wanting to move away from um, also, by the way, this is an addition. He's also been wanting to move away from focusing strictly on the alien, right, the xenomorph, and also focus more on artificial intelligence. That's why in Alien Covenant and Prometheus, you see him dealing a lot more with the androids right. and their doings. And in fact... <laughs> What is uh, one of the androids doing, David? Uh, it's manipulating our organic matter and creating his own little um, xenomorphs of his own. So it is totally about uh, uh, creation and rebellion and wrath because uh, it really Scott's mythos, the engineers are an alien race that came to Earth and... Ridley Scott talked about how he was pulling elements from the Old Testament into these this mythos. And one thing they didn't emphasize in the movies, but was considered behind the scenes, was that one of the engineers had come to Earth to save us, but we had killed him, so now their wrath is upon us. And well, that would obviously be Jesus, right? So it's really, really interesting how an atheist is sort of rethinking all these theological matters as well as matters pertaining to high tech and packaging them together, right? Because um, right. In, in a way, the original Alien, it's basically a slasher film, but the slasher isn't a psychopath human, it's an alien. But you do have elements that, uh, for instance, when it begins, they show up on that planet and there's this whole structure which in this original script was going to be a pyramid. And there's what has, has come to be known as the space jockey, right? This gigantic thing that we don't know what it is, but it's like biomechanical. And uh, Scott didn't touch upon that again until all these decades later when he's revealing to us that, well, that, that was the engineers. And right. the, the xenomorph is like a bioweapon they created essentially. No, it's it's really yeah, but yes, but the aliens also kind of like you see that sterility, the kind of uh, no god involved throughout all of Alien and probably Predator too. I haven't watched all the Predator films, but well, aliens still see you know, that nihilism, yeah, nihilism. Definitely, I mean, um, Alien. Um, there are psychological aspects of it, which is that it's all about daddy and mommy issues. And it's heavily about pregnancy and abortion. That's all over those movies. 
Um, but then on the worldview side, yeah, there is no God. There's just biology. And so um, humans and aliens just manipulate biology towards their end, right? And then there's the aspect of either big government or big corporation, because you'll have um, uh, Whalen Yutani Corporation. Okay. Yeah, where Yutani uh, kind of gets dropped and it just becomes Whalen. But uh, their point is to gather up alien technology and biology, <laughs> right, towards their end. Same thing in Predator, actually. Uh, well, where eventually Mr. Whalen himself, as he's very close to death due to Asian disease, wants to meet these engineers to have them grant him eternal life, you know, to heal him. And, well, you know, Basically, he gets uh, pimp slapped into oblivion. <laughs> right. But so, it's it's incredible. Prometheus is, high, I would call it almost hyper-theological or religious yeah. themes. Like, from the beginning, yes. the girl is uh, unable to have children. So you yes. see this whole, like, gestation theme. She wears a cross. The David, the alien, is taunting her. All the time, yeah, almost android. kind of yeah. like a android. Yeah, the android's almost kind of like a Lucifer figure. Like, where's your god now? He says, right. And and then Wayland himself is like trying to cheat death and goes to right. his own creator. And the pimp slap you mentioned is almost like that's here's your worldview. There's no god. Everything you thought was really going to be noble and wonderful, these aliens don't give any. Don't even consider you worthy yeah. of anything, you know. And that is so, one of the one of the things that's delicious about these films is, yeah, that the, the highest human authority, you know, like Whalen, the richest man on the planet, to the aliens, he's like, you're right. nothing. You're literally right. nothing. Just boom, get out of here. You're nothing. You've done has any meaning whatsoever. So yeah, there's that nihilism and also that. Uh, you know, that Faustian bargain where you thought you could um, uh, lord it over people your whole life and you became the top dog. And now you find out you got a price to pay and that's your life and it's all meaningless. Yeah. And I, I would, there's, I mean, like you said, and you wrote in the book, those themes are consistent all throughout that, all throughout these, these shows, even the Predator, right? The, yes. the humans are really just a, it's really the most dangerous game for, from some alien elite. And uh, well, see, yeah. what's interesting, okay, so they take the xenomorph, the alien. Um, we don't really know of a way to communicate with it. We don't know how to reason with it. Um, eventually in one of the movies, they trap a couple of them. And, you know, through pain, they're able to try to study them a bit and figure out how they, what makes them tick. But the Predator are very different. They're a lot more human-like in that they have a definite ethos. So, for instance, one of the themes in the movie is that they're not going to attack a human unless that human has a weapon, and so they're a potential threat. And, and that's important, right? That's a definite ethos because they're hunters or they're, um, you know, like the, their title is Predator. So they have certain things they will and won't do. Um, so themes in that movie are also um, governmental. For example, the first Predator is premised upon a CIA operation gone bad. Right. And it's, it's made clear that the CIA is just using 
this group of, uh, you know, ragamuffin soldiers for hire, and they're just there to do a job. They don't really matter, right? And, and then in later movies, it, it also ties into a huge corporation who is, again, um, trying to gather together alien weaponry and biology and anything they can for uh, weapons purposes. They want to be able to reverse engineer the aliens technology. And there's also aspects of what's funny in the earlier movies is global warming. And then in later movies, of course, is climate change. So they, they play upon those themes because the, the predators like it here because it's getting pretty hot and that's how they like it, you know? That's see, interesting. But there are kind of similarities between the two franchises, this alien, the, the, you know, temple themes that are in there, these kind of old ancient, like it's almost like they're going back into ancient ruins in some of these right. and, sequences. And both, yes. In both franchises, they end up uh, playing off of what um, um, Eric Von Daniken originally called ancient astronauts, which has been updated to ancient aliens. They both definitely play that, that card. And so these aliens have been here for millennia. They used to be worshipped as gods. Temples were built for them, and temples were, were built by them. So in, in one of the movies, they find one of these temples hidden under the ice in the North Pole. And, or is it Antarctica? Anyhow, and it turns out that these temples were made to have human sacrifices offered to these gods. And so that then that would produce the, the xenomorphs. It would basically kind of feed them, right? Because you have the whole face hugger thing with the, again, the uh, penetration and the pregnancy theme. Um, and then the predators could show up and hunt them for sport, you know, that whole thing. So yeah, it's, it, again, though, it's touching upon the theme that um, Arthur C. Clarke really popularized in Childhood's End, which is why do those aliens look exactly like theologically inaccurate, but traditional depictions of Satan or demons? Well, he explains it's because those aliens had come to the earth oh so long ago and humans saw them and then humans just ended up between them in myth and legend as devils or demons, but they're really aliens. Yeah, so it's really, really interesting. Uh, of course, we can't go without talking about H.R. Giger, right? Especially on the right. alien side. Yeah, don't so, forget Lovecraft either. Don't forget Lovecraft. Okay, so, deep. you know, what's sad is uh, Guillermo del Toro was thinking about directing a movie based on the H.P. Lovecraft's The Mountains of Madness. And he kind of just forewent that project after seeing Ridley Scott's uh, Prometheus. Because to him, it was basically at The Mountains of Madness. And it's too bad, because that would have been a great movie uh, made by Del Toro. Um, so unfortunately, we probably won't get to see that. But yeah, the, some of the background here uh, ties into H.P. Lovecraft. Of course, like I said, with Dan O'Bannon writing the original script for Alien and him writing a Necronomicon of his own. I mean, you'd have to be pretty deep into Lovecraft to even conceive of doing something like that. 
Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And O'Bannon, O'Bannon came off of the Dune project with, uh, what is it, Alejandro Jodorowsky, right? Yeah. yeah. So, the, I mean, it's kind of interesting. And both Giger or Giger or whatever and O'Bannon came off that project into Aliens. So this is an interesting background. And you cover a lot of the Geiger art as well. The books, right? Um, so, yeah, the movie definitely would not have been what it is without Giger uh, because he brought an element of something <laughs> that's altogether literally alien. It's just altogether, um, it's basically transhumanism. And I always say transhumanism inevitably combines three elements high tech, the occult, and evolution. It's you, you. You can't separate them. So if if we could build a, a an alternative universe, okay, and if we could say within that universe, the worst nightmarish aspects of transhumanism came to be, that would be H.R. Giger's uh, artwork because he's depicting these vast vistas of uh, what he called uh, biomechanics, right? Biomechanoids. Right. So it's a com combination of biology and technology and occult themes you just cannot miss. They're just very blunt. So occult. Yeah, you said you, yeah, you wrote in your book like Geiger was trying to create a new architecture and a new ideas of bio biomechanics. So a little bit more broad, broader interest than mere art, I, I think, in his perspective. It was, um, it was, you know, he has hinted himself and there have been statements made about him, which is that he was tapping into something that was just beyond, hey, I want to do some cool paintings. <laughs> like he talks about his nightmares, right? And um, it was just a, a lifelong fascination with him, with this dark occult stuff. He talks about when he was a little boy, he would uh, drive his bicycle in which he connected a chain hooked onto a human skull his dad had given him. So he's just dragging it around the road as he's riding his bicycle as a little kid, you know, very dark stuff. And so what was it, if anything, that he was trying to portray? Again, I, I can't see that it was anything but um, sort of a futuristic view of transhumanism where through occultism, then evolution is taken out of the hands of nature, right? Why natural selection? Why not take evolution into our own hands and make something uh, in our own image? And so you have this combination of biology and technology. Where yeah, I mean, it's pretty gruesome because... You wrote in the book, like the original sculpture of the alien. In the original alien, he was using a real human skull right. to model that. So it's very right. dark, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, he's a dark figure. Yeah. I think you watched that documentary about him, right? Yes. And I think it covers like all that uh, his, uh, the guy who's working for him has Crowley's universal hexagram. I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of that called the uh, Black Star, right? The documentary. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he's yeah, really so proud that, of real erotic kind of uh, graphic yes. depictions of now, stuff, and laughed, kind of laughed about it. Yeah. 
Yeah, incidentally, that guy, I don't remember his name, but the, that guy who became his assistant is the lead singer of the metal band Celtic Frost. Right, that's right. But yeah, so... I think that's how they kind of met up, yeah, sorry. Now, um, as Ridley Scott was pondering the design of the alien, someone handed him Giger's book, Necronomicon, <laughs> It's just a book of his artwork, but it's called. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, oh boy. It was like a shorter it's version. Called it's called like Necro, Necronom, or something like that. Yeah. Or uh, or biomechanin. Um, anyhow, no. Okay, here, the book is biomechanoids or biomechanics, and the painting is called Necronom Four. And that's where Ridley looked at it and said, yep, that's our alien. And you have the typical, very elongated head, the, the black, uh, great white shark type eyes with no lids. And uh, so, yeah, that definitely brought a phallic aspect to it. And as you might have read in there, also the design for the alien eggs was at first uh, demanded that it be changed because it was very female anatomy-like, shall we say. <laughs> so those those elements are just all over these uh, franchises. And now on the, on the Predator side, you also have these concepts of them um, ending up abducting people in the later movie and putting them down on a planet where, again, it was just a hunting spot for them. And so we have this aspect of now humans traveling to other planets for these purposes, but then they get a hold of one of the spaceships and they want to go to the Predator's planet. We haven't been there yet, but they want to chase them down to their own planet. And kind of uh, same thing in, in the Alien franchise, by the way, is the humans want to confront the aliens once and for all and ask them, what up? You know, why Why are you doing all this stuff? Yeah. And again, whether the aliens will care to discuss it or not, right? right. Or will. <laughs> so they were, the humans are kind of aghast. They're confused by them, but they never really get great answers. I mean, I, I don't think even in the alien mythos, they don't, you know, they don't even know, like, I think that David asks the girl who's the lead, Nomi Rapace, and says, well, haven't you found your God? And I said, who made them, right? So, like, they went all the way to find uh, the so-called engineers, but who made the engineers? And they actually, right. that's how it ends, right? They actually fly off in a leftover spaceship and go to try to find another planet. Right. Because... In an uh, atheist universe, it's an infinite regression, right? And that's been known, I mean, obviously, philosophically, that's obvious. And you can even see that in the documentary Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, where Ben Stein is asking Richard Dawkins about this, because Dawkins is going on and on about aliens. Maybe they created us, and he says, well, who created them? Well, we don't know. So you're not answering any questions. You're just throwing the question back another step or two or three or a thousand. All right, good point. 
I mean, I think that's why the themes of these films are so important because people are wrestling with them publicly now. Uh, so you see, you know, like does art imitate life? Does life imitate art? You ask that question. And the answer, I think you correctly answer, which is both. And so yeah, you're seeing these economy. Like, yeah. Right, right. Uh, so, and I, so I, you see this contact in the desert. So you have this nexus of occultists, aliens, nihilists, uh, atheists, and Darwinists, which is really weird. So we're seeing a Darwinist really like an alien kind of subject. Anyway, we are at about 35 minutes. Do you want to take a few questions? Johnny, are you there? Sure. Even listening going on? Yeah. I know that you had a question, Johnny Iron from the Iron Show. Do you want to unmute? Is he asleep? Okay. Um, In the meantime, uh, the reason we are talking about Raised by Wolves and this book back to back is because Raised by Wolves is essentially a cousin to the alien mythos. Uh, it's not just because Ridley Scott's company is producing that show and Ridley Scott directed the first two episodes, but because there's so many themes that are just unquestionably tied together. Like uh, at the end of Raised by Wolves, they find uh, what appears to be an engineer on the Kepler planet and also um, some skull that looks like uh, one of the space jockeys. So it's, I mean, it's it's just another another part of it, another type of depiction. And, and again, what's that show about? Same thing, uh, occultism, evolution, and high tech, and androids. Androids, right. I mean, so you're depicting present problems or present, very soon future problems, as in like within the next decade, depicted in these films like you mentioned Ramona this kind of artificial be I mean I don't I think Gertzel said that they really weren't that far out from having our true Android yeah and I, I always wonder I'm not smart enough to know how they're ever going to figure out uh, if we reach what they call general artificial intelligence or strong artificial intelligence which is supposedly when an artificial intelligence becomes self-aware, I'm not sure how you would actually determine that when you're dealing with um, a, it's hard to know what to call it, an, an intelligence that is just already so far beyond yours, how do you figure that out? I mean, what if it's only 80% or 90% uh, strong or general? How, would you be able to tell or does it even, does it even matter or, or who, by the way, might be behind the scenes pulling the levers, of course, if they tell you, hey, this is the uh, uber intelligence and we must do what it says. Well, everything's hackable, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, they could do a Dominion job on you, right? A Dominion job on the on the robot. Hey, uh, uh, what Johnny here. Hey, Johnny. Oh, there How you We're doing? I wanted to say that, um, according to like what I understand, they're pretty far from general intelligence is what you guys were talking about. General intelligence supposedly is a long ways off, but in, in order to have sentience, which is self-awareness, you would have to have three different artificial intelligences witnessing to each other about their own existence, because that's how we're 
that's my theory anyway, how we are sentient and self-aware is because we're mind, body, and spirit constantly witnessing to each other about our existence. Does that make sense? I think if you had an artificial intelligence, it would be something like that. It would be a triune, a triune intelligence, a trinity <laughs> before it became self-aware. But uh, I, I, I disagreed with you a little bit um, when I heard your... Um, your critique of uh of uh, raised by wolves sorry <laughs> um yeah i nobody now i'm the only one on the planet that's saying this but um everybody seems to agree with you because they were i've been following all the chats and everything they're all agreeing with you but i saw it a different way i thought that um that what you had was you had uh mother as mary and father, as Joseph, um, put the boy into her. So this is it's it's like um, Mary, uh, Jesus, and Joseph. And then at the very end, what got me was that um, she gives birth to the serpent, right? Which is like Ridley Scott's um, picture of the Proto Evangelion, right? Um, yes. So I saw it kind of I saw it the opposite of the what you did, but I agree with everything you said. But I think there's another layer to it which flips it upside down on its head. I'm glad you put it that way because we are dealing with layers upon layers and also metaphors that are not going to be perfect, right? Because they're being fictionalized and tied to other things. So um I would definitely consider your interpretation, but I would say that we need to hold off because there's some odd things here. So one is that mother ends up not thinking that she's actually interacting with Campion Sturgis, her quote unquote creator, because after all, as for all we know, he's dead. She's interacting with, uh, um, uh, a high-tech reconstruction of him based on algorithms, right? Yeah. And then she ends up saying, you're a virus, right? So she ends up not knowing how she got pregnant. Although, yes, I, I wouldn't call it immaculate conception, but a virgin birth, because the only quote-unquote sex she had was in a simulation, so it wasn't really real. But she ends up saying, you're not really Campion, um, you're a virus. So we don't know what that virus is. And moreover, the reason it, it's not explained in the show explicitly, but I've read uh, statements about it from, from Aaron, um, the original scriptwriter. He says the reason that the serpent flies is because it inherited that ability from mother since she's a necromancer. Yeah. But, but then why is it a serpent? So a serpent must have impregnated her, right? And, yeah. and we, we don't know what that means yet. We don't know how that came about or what kind of a serpent was it or anything. I think, I think it's, you know, the, you were talking about the, uh, those vegetables that grew out of yeah, the, the carbos. Yeah. It's, she probably got a dose of that. <laughs> And that's how she got the flying snake. So you're saying they should go on a low carbo diet, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice. And just stick to the fun guy, like uh, <laughs> like Campion and Paul did. It was sad. There was really nothing on the menu on that planet. Let's not go there. 
Well, but you remember their goal was to reach the tropical side of the planet where there's going to be uh, food aplenty, apparently. So the speculation is that what they're really doing is they're trying to find uh, styled Eden. Right. But that is yeah. also that's proper Christian theology right there is that ultimately the return to the Edenic state. Right. Right. I mean, that's the reason Jesus died to return us all. Ultimately, we're not there yet, but ultimately we, re we return to that Edenic state. Now, the, other, the other oddity is that at first the Mithraist speculated that, that the boy Campion was the one prophesied in the pentagonal prophecy. Uh, but then Caleb, who became um, Marcus, he starts thinking that he himself must be that that person uh, but then also they're starting to think that maybe it's paul after all so we don't even know which one of these people if any of them of the three already are going to be the fulfillment of the prophecy so yeah, that's just one of those things it's it's still a little unclear because obviously they want a bunch of mysteries to get us to watch season two <laughs> Oh yeah, you got me hooked too. He's got Ridley's got me hooked. Oh yeah, you know the the Mithras cult. When I the first you know four or five uh, episodes in, I was convinced. Oh, they're just poking at the Christians, right? That's they're just part of it, I think. right. Okay, oh. but then it finally occurred to me: these guys are Roman soldiers. They're sun worshippers. It's the it's the Roman Empire, and they and the atheists are they're persecuting the atheists. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. The Roman Empire was persecuting the Christians for being atheists. Atheists, right. <laughs> yeah. Which, see, there's another layer there. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And so obviously the Mithraist worship soul. So in the book, I ended up writing in terms of soldiers, S-O-L-D-I-E-R-S, right? Soldiers, soul dyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. That that got me. And when I heard you say that, because the the original Mithra is cult was very much um, a lot of the adherents were the Roman soldiers. It was very much militaristic. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Now this is Rome. <laughs> She's Mary, and he's Joseph, and the boy is Jesus. Let's. Uh, you know what? If you if you watch Prometheus, there's the Christian woman right throughout the whole thing. Yes. And like you were saying earlier, she asks that question, okay, well, who made them, right? And Ridley Scott um, really preserves that role of of, uh, of a Christian woman. I don't know if you could take apart her theology, but she didn't, you know, he didn't like dishonor, you know, that, that worldview, right? At least in Prometheus necessarily. So I wonder if he's a closet believer, if that's possible. It's hard to say. I mean, because it, it's difficult because uh, he talks about being influenced by his theological background um, only to the point that it has helped him um, sort of be a bit more moral throughout his life. But so you, you do wonder, uh, for one, I just want to say I'll definitely take your interpretation into serious consideration, especially as I watch season two. And, and um, yeah, so how much of it is uh, Ridley Scott telling us is um, just sort of trying to, as we said, layer 
layer Old Testament theology and New Testament theology into transhumanist sci-fi, or uh, maybe he'll, who knows, right? We're having to dig into his mind at this point, which is very tricky. Brain surgery on Ridley Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I'll back out of here. I just wanted to jump in and, and mix in with you here and let, uh, I don't want to take over William's show, which I'm that's a host. Okay, no. Do you have any so other questions, Sean? Go ahead. Don't worry about it. No, since I'm a host, uh, what I want to do, my my alpha personality is to come in, take over your show, and just keep <laughs> you out on the front yard. <laughs> it's all good. So, you, if you, if you want to answer some of these questions, that's fine. Here's another question. This is from Tyrone. What do you think of David Fincher is trying to do with Alien 3, Ridley trapped on that off-planet jail with only men? Now, by the way, let me just mention something. Uh, I happen to think that the female character's name, Ripley, is obviously just playing off of Ridley Scott. And I think that it's like uh, one of these occult gender game things where it's an expression of his feminine, sacred feminine side, right? Ridley and Ripley. Now, the main thing I saw in that movie is that the setup is like Dante's Inferno, because the way she arrives on that planet is the ship crashes and she basically just comes to and she's on the shores right and so it plays out and and there's a lot of terminology obviously the whole planet is a refinery so you have the themes of fire and it's basically a a, a, an alien high-tech version of dante's inferno and then, incidentally, speaking of theology, we, we have the movie where the Ripley character has died, so she's cloned. So there you have, like, a high-tech resurrection. I mean, it's, it's off the charts. Now, I wanted to mention that one thing you might find interesting, William. I don't know if you got as far as where I'm talking about the... Okay, so for the last couple movies there's a bunch of shorts you can watch one of them is called last supper okay i mean (laughs) hello (laughs) and that one stars guess who um james franco and he's sitting there with the crew and he's got this robe over his body you know and he's sitting there doing this like blessing sign I mean, it's so obvious, and just they tell you it's called Last Supper, so there's just not no getting away from the imagery. Um, so then if you want to chase that alien theme, you have James Franco hanging out with Kenneth Fanger, who did the movie where the UFOs appear over the Great Pyramids. and Right. It's the end of Lucifer Rising. Yeah. yeah. No, they also did the, the video together, which is like a full ritual. Um, it's uh, Love in the Old Days. So now this other question, where do you foresee the alien timeline and mythos going? That is hard to say, although Ridley Scott has been giving us hints. But the thing is, he might not be the only one to keep making these movies, right? So when another director takes over, they kind of have leeway as to where they want to take it. So for instance, Ridley Scott directed Alien in 79, but then he didn't direct another Alien movie until 2017. Okay, so meanwhile, all those other movies, sure, they played off of it, but he didn't um, have the kind of 
creative control that he might when he keeps making his own movies. But like I said, he definitely wants to move away from the alien theme and focus more on the artificial intelligence of the androids. Um, but the thing is, again, as I mentioned already, is that you have the android toying with genetic manipulation. So it's almost like you won't be able to get away from the two. And so the question becomes ultimately, what is this alien? What is it? And it's funny online, you can find people that have made charts of the biolo biological genealogy of the xenomorphs and the engineers and then the androids gen genetically manipulating and what results they're from and all this, the face hugger and the eggs and everything. And so ultimately, where is this all coming from? And will there, will there never be an actual God or will it be an, an alien or, I mean, who knows? It's, uh, but I just see it as moving more in the direction of, um, continuous um, transhumanism. Again, occult, evolution, and high tech. They just will not be able to to separate those. I think that I think that the alien um, in aliens, the aliens are going to end up, my prediction is they're going to end up being evolved humans. Humans that evolved themselves, that messed with their genome and turned themselves into monsters. You know, that's <laughs> That's very interesting uh, for a few reasons. One is, and raised by wolves, you have those creatures on the planet, right? And nobody really knows yet how they got there or what they are. But I, as I watched it, I predicted, I bet those are devolving humans. And sure enough, that's an aspect of it. Where in my book, Fifty Shades of Grey Aliens, I talk about how I started hearing from specifically from four different people who are in like three very different circles talking about how they thought gray aliens were actually human beings coming to visit us from the future. Okay. And so that led me to try to track down where this stereotypical physiognomy of the gray aliens came from, right? The big head, the big eyes and all that. And I traced it back to H.G. Wells in his essay, Man of the Year One Million, where he's looking forward a million years, wondering what human beings might look like. And guess what? They look exactly like that. So then I traced it forwards through the golden era of sci-fi and fantasy literature and comic books and movies. And yeah, initially, that is how human beings look like who were coming to visit us for the future. And the timeline isn't perfect, but eventually it seemed to me, following the concept of how many times can you tell the same story, all of a sudden they started saying, oh, guess what? Those aren't human beings visiting us from the future. Those are actually aliens from elsewhere. So there's definitely something to that, Johnny. You know, the, according to Alien Lore, according to the insiders, what you said uh, is exactly what happened. That's the greys. It's, it, it was a, a race of humans that uh, evolved. They, they didn't evolve. They messed with their genome to make themselves uh, smarter and more telepathic. 
and with better sight and blah 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 and that's why they're abducting us to get <laughs> to get our genome back to to get back to where we were because they realized they'd made a mistake i don't know you probably know all that yeah i mean i've heard a lot of I don't know who actually is an insider, <laughs> but I've heard a lot of that. I've also heard that they're a form of artificial intelligence, almost like at the end of Steven Spielberg's movie, Artificial Intelligence, where he's depicting the world 3,000 years in the future or so. And there's these beings there that kind of look like just really tall gray aliens, but they actually turn out to be artificial intelligence of the... Um, oh, what's the term he uses? It's not stated in the movie, but but that was the explanation. That is that they're a form of artificial intelligence. And guess what? Why do they look essentially like uh, tall gray aliens? It's silicon based. That's what it is. Silicon based artificial intelligence. Yeah, the light beings that were at the end of it. Yeah, those were, yeah, yeah, uh, evolved uh, artificial intelligent yes. beings. Yeah, really, some that's a good movie. What about Alien versus Predator? Did Ridley Scott have anything to do with that movie? Not that I know of. That was just kind of a gratuitous, <laughs> gratuitous sci-fi violent well, film. There wasn't well, a lot to it. There was AVP Alien versus Predators, but then yeah. there was Aliens versus Predator Requiem, and they're they're very different movies. You're probably thinking about Aliens versus Predator Requiem. Yeah, that, was, that was the one that takes place in a town, and uh, you know, they're they're basically battling it out in the middle of a city. Whereas the original AVP Alien versus Predator is the one that takes place in the temple under the ice. Yeah, AVP. That's the one I saw. I didn't see the second one. Yeah, oh, okay. in a temple under the ice in a Antarctica, yeah. uh, supposedly, ostensibly Antarctica. <laughs> what do you? What do you? I just wanted to fly off the total off the chain. What do you think of Antarctica? What do you think's going on down there? I think that people have really fascinating ideas about it. And unfortunately, I don't know if anybody knows. I, it's one of those things that just frustrates me because, okay, I, I, I've heard a ton of really fascinating stuff and it's really exciting and sounds cool and interesting, but ultimately nobody knows at this point. I thought so you I, might you might have some theories. I was listening to your take on the Giants in um, – Genesis and I think it's is it Numbers is the is the other place. Yes. Yeah, I was I was thinking um, that you had some ideas about um, things that were kind of off the cuff, you know, or beyond the pale, like Antarctica and things like that. Actually, in, in this book, um, a worldview review of the Alien and Predator Mythos franchises, I did end up writing a little bit about nephilim because somebody brought it up and unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately for them it turned into me having to correct a lot of the stuff they were saying about it uh, because there's a ton of misinformation and disinformation in that field of research but there, there's a little bit of that in here 
but as to what it would have to do with Antarctica, um, I not only don't know, but I would instantly doubt it because if even part of God's purpose for the flood was to be rid of Nephilim, then any concept of post-flood Nephilim at any time and in any way, shape, or form would imply that God failed. Um, I've always kind of thought that, you know, the second incursion, supposedly there's loopholes for a second incursion, which right. I, mean, I was, I always kind of agreed with you and, you know, and then there's all the legends about uh, one of them hooking on to the side of the ark and survive. Okay, well, okay, hold on. So, <laughs> You've heard all of those. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I like the way you put it, a loophole. So yeah. that implies loopholes that God missed. Yeah, right. The kind of problems that creates. Not to mention, there is no second incursion in the Bible. Somebody literally invented that. Right, yes. Just like someone invented that it was, uh, they made it through genetically. I mean... That's just an invention. And yeah, there is uh, in rabbinic literature uh, the story that Og of Bashan, who, by the way, was not a Nephil, he was a Repha, so it doesn't even matter. But yeah, this uh, story that he was gigantic and Noah let him sit on top of the ark and would feed him and stuff. And just, I mean, come on, it's, it's obviously just folklore from millennia after Genesis was written. What do you do? What do you do with the two spies, though, Joshua and Caleb? How they they come <laughs> back and they say, "Well, we 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 spied out the land, you know." Uh, and there's uh, and these guys uh, are huge. No, no, they no, look like we no, they make no, us no, look no, like no, grasshoppers, no. and no. we we seem no. like we're, we feel like grasshoppers compared to them. How no, do you deal with that passage? I, I deal with it by telling you it never happened. See, I caught you. You said Joshua and Caleb claimed I'm that. Sorry. They didn't. The, the other spies spy. did. The two spies. I'm sorry. Right. Well, there were 12 spies. Joshua the first and Caleb. Two that came that? back and report. The first two that came back and reported. There's no, there's no first two. There's 12 that spied out the land. And uh, there's 12 that spied out the land. And all 12 came back. But Joshua and Caleb disagreed with the other 10. That's right. I'm, I'm remembering it wrong. It's the other. It's the other. Uh, and um, there's some guy on the screen above me. I think his name's William. Who's probably going to have to take back over the show. <laughs> but, I'm sorry. No, no, don't. I, I, I'm just mentioning that in case he's getting like. Uh, well, probably, okay. Though probably. Okay, so let me just make a quick statement. The way the important thing isn't reading one single verse which is number 1333. What's important is looking at the narrative. The narrative is that all 12 come back. A report is presented that is accepted as is. Okay, no problem. Um, and then Caleb has to speak out to comfort the people and encourage them because this is a band of wilderness itinerant tent dwellers who were just told that the land is inhabited by people who are strong and who have large fortified cities. So they're obviously intimidated. Okay, but then the other spies say, no, we're not gonna be able to go against these people. And then, then it is specified that they present an evil report and it is only within the evil report that they do a number of things. They contradict themselves. They embellish their original report. They also contradict Moses, Joshua, Caleb, God, and the rest of the Bible. 
and they're rebuked for it. And they make three claims about which the whole entire rest of the Bible knows nothing. That there's post-flood Nephilim, that Anakim are related to them, and that they're very, very, very tall. You don't find that anywhere else in the whole entire Bible. So the, the, the narrative begs you to understand that these guys are absolutely unreliable. And what they said should not be accepted as true. There's nothing about the entire narrative that would make you think that they were being truthful. And every indication that th that you would not trust people like that in your daily life, where self-contradictory embellishers are rebuked and contradict the highest authorities known to humankind, you know, and they make up stuff that can't be verified by anything else. There's no second or third test witnesses for that, the stuff they said. It just that doesn't... That's interesting. I'm going to yeah. think a lot about that. You, yeah, you, you make a really good yeah. case. That's really, yeah. I'm going to turn it over to William. I have more questions. But... No, go ahead. Keep going. If you got another 15 minutes of questions, go ahead. <laughs> well, um, I was going to, well, I was just going, I was going to say that. Although you're definitely putting Ken on the spot. That's for sure. No, I like being on the spot. No, because Ken, I mean, there's there's other people that would agree with Ken. I mean, one of the things is that if you read Genesis 6, it says there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, right, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children of unto them, these became the mighty men of renown, right? Um, but it doesn't say that the mighty men of renown that were the offspring, it doesn't say they were giants. It just says they were the mighty men of renown. Now, they could have been uh, like demigods almost with superpowers beyond a regular human. But as far as like being giants, it, it never actually says that. You know, I've heard that case presented where it says there's giants on the earth in those days. And also after that. So now you zoom forward to the, the mating thing. Right. Which a lot of people, the, the Sethite view and all that. But. Still, it doesn't say that the mighty men were giants. It just says that they're offspring of this union. And it does. And as far as the timeline going, goes, when, and also after that, it doesn't mean after the flood, right? right. I just thought I'd bring that point out, see right. what you thought. Yeah, let me uh, touch upon that in just a sec. I wanted to mention uh, Barry Goldwater in the comments mentioned Crowley's Gray. Yeah, his depiction of Lamb uh, definitely plays into that. And then uh, Tyrone again saying angels are, uh, or sorry, aliens are, quote unquote, angels, yo, some, and demons to other. I know you meant to, I mean, um, just misspell that. But uh, yeah, you're throwing in a little bit of um, Hellraiser into that, huh? Angels to some, demons to others. Good one. Good one. Yeah. Okay. So, right. Um, those days and after that, uh, that's verse four of Genesis six. The flood is not even mentioned for the very first time until a full 13 verses later. And so what days and after that, well, the problem with the evil report we just talked about in Numbers 1333 is that people will actually believe it and they'll actually pick up and run with it and they'll turn it into a hermeneutic. So they'll turn it into this worldview whereby now they're reading everything else through that lens. 
and says they actually believe there's post-flood Nephilim, then they have to go back to Genesis 6-4 and try to massage it into talking about how it is that Nephilim survived, considering that after the flood, we're all told eight people and some animals survived. So that's the end of them. But the text is very clear. It tells you they were on the earth in those days and after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, right? So that's when they, they began, um, which verse 1, incidentally, 6-1, tells you that happened when men began to multiply upon the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now, when was that? I have no idea. I mean, it could have been as early as when Adam and Eve's kids started having kids. But regardless, those are the days. Those days are when they first did it. And after that, well, it's after they first did it. So they kept doing it. And yet that's all still all pre-flood. So if someone wants to claim more than one incursion, feel free. But you have to put them pre-flood. I want to go on record with saying that I happen to be in your camp. Welcome to the camp. <laughs> got a hand. Yeah. All right, let's. I got to wrap it up, guys. Dinner's ready. So, well, what are we having? Uh, for people who can get your book, they go to truefreethinker.com, right? That's yes, the best, best place yep. to buy this. Uh, everything's there, everything you could ever want. And all your other books. Again, the title of the book is A Worldview Review of the Alien and Predator Mythos Franchises. And we also had a very special guest. Johnny from the Iron Show, which I think it's still www.ironshow.com, right? Yeah, it's actually Fringe Radio Network slash iron.html, or just go to Fringe Radio Network. I own the Fringe Radio Network, of course. And yeah, there's, celebrate. There's tons of different podcasts on there. Yep. 11 years in your ear, baby. Nice. That's a, that's a long time as far as podcasting goes. Anyway, thanks, Ken. Thanks for your time. Great book. Fantastic insights as usual. You guys have a good night. Thank you, and God bless you all. God bless you, too. Let's go.